your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made it seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Basco, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Erin. We're really excited to get into this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, Let's jump right into our discussion. Um, First, we're thinking that some of our listeners might not have a very good sense of what Title 42 is. Could you maybe share with us a little bit of its history, uh, its influence on migration in the last several years? Sure. So Title 42 is actually not um, related to immigration in particular. It's a public health law. So it allows the executive to um, do certain actions to protect the health of the U.S. And so um, the Trump administ- President Trump in March of 2020, he enacted um, parts of Title 42 to close the southern border to um, it, to anyone who was trying to cross, and specifically it affected mostly people seeking asylum. Um, the Trump administration prior to that had toyed with um, with enacting Title 42 on the southern border for other reasons, um, for things that were not a pandemic. So it was something they were obviously thinking about quite a bit, um, and then they enacted it, and it was in, it was three years where the border was closed to people seeking asylum um, until it was um, it was terminated on March 11th of this year of 2023. So, good background on that. Yeah, and now that it has been terminated, why did it come to an end, especially right now? And without it, what will replace it? Well, so Biden, the President Biden, actually attempted to end Title. 42 previously, but mm. um, it was litigated and some judges um, put a stop to the end of it. But once the official health emergency was um, was announced in the or the end of the um, pandemic, there was no reason to keep it going except for to deter people from immigrating to the United States. So some people started using it more as um, a deterrent for people Um, and the closure closure of our borders versus um, a way to protect the health of people in the U.S. So what is Biden planning? Are we planning on returning to what um, had previously been in place before Title 42, or is there something new? So it's a complicated question because it reverts back to Title 8, and that's Mm -hmm. what governs our asylum laws and our border laws generally. Um, our asylum laws have not changed, the laws themselves have not changed since 1980, but there, as everyone probably has noticed, there's a lot of change within immigration policies and procedures depending on who the executive is in the office. And so while we reverted back to Title VIII, it did not, it, the border does not look like it did 10 years ago. Um, Biden created additional policies in place that um, make it incredibly difficult for people to, to seek asylum on our southern border. Okay. And can I just ask, what exactly does Title VIII entail, also as someone who doesn't know the immigration laws too, too well? Yeah. So uh, Title VIII, it, a, a number of things, but the one thing that's most relevant to kind of what we're talking about today is the ability for people to seek asylum in the U.S. Mm. And um, messaging in the 
media is often convoluted because people say there's an open border or people can just cross the border and ask for asylum. And in some ways that's true. You can ask for asylum at um, a port of entry uh, and you could, under our laws, can ask for asylum if you enter the United States without authorization. Um, and asylum is a protection for people who have been persecuted or fear of persecution based on their race, religion, nationality, membership in a uh, particular social group, or political opinion. And that hasn't changed since 1980. That's what um, our laws say and our international uh, treaties um, say as well. But um, the new policies under Biden now make it much more difficult for people to seek asylum at the southern border by instituting what he calls, um, or what they call, and I have to read it because it's hard to say, the circumvention of lawful pathways. And it basically entails three main, um, three main rules that will deter people from being eligible for asylum. Um, there is a presumption of anybody who arrives at our southern border right now that they are ineligible for asylum unless they prove otherwise. And reasons why they would be ineligible for asylum are um, they didn't make an appointment on what's called the CDP1 app. So our government is now asking people to schedule an appointment to seek asylum at the southern border. Um, through an app that you need high-speed internet, well, you need a phone, or I guess you could do it on the computer. Can you do apps on the computer? I think so. <laughs> but, um, so it's inaccessible to many people, and you have to be um, close to the southern border to do it. Um, the second is uh, that you haven't crossed, uh, if you cross through a third country on the way to the southern border, and you didn't apply for asylum in that third country and you were denied asylum in that third country, you're ineligible to seek asylum in the United States. And then the third is um, not having a, like what's called humanitarian parole. So Biden has made it extremely difficult for people to access, access asylum at our southern border, but has created um, other lawful pathways that people supposedly are eligible to, to seek. Um, but they are not quite up and running yet. Very interesting. So can I ask, those pathways sound to me at least a lot like pathways that are easily accessible, or more so easily accessible for those who have resources than those who don't. You know, is there an inequity, sorry, is there an inequity piece happening here that's important to discuss? I mean, absolutely. Like, the people, uh, Biden has announced that there's going to be humanitarian parole options for people from Venezuela, Cuba, um, Nicaragua, and um, uh, there's a fourth country that I'm not remembering. Um, but you have to have a U.S. sponsor. So you have to have someone in the U.S. who can financially sponsor you. So most people seeking asylum don't have resources like that. And many of the people who um, already left Venezuela early who are seeking asylum in the U.S., they those were the ones that had the resources. They could fly to the US, they had visas, all of the above. Now the people that um, are still seeking asylum generally don't have those connections. I think opening up this sponsorship option is a step in the right direction. Canada's been doing it for, for years and it's been, it works. 
Um, but yes, you have to look at like who are you really, who's really going to benefit from it? Is it the people that are already have safety in their country and have resources versus the people that truly um, their lives are at risk and they know they don't have time to stop and wait and wait for someone to sponsor them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and last time you were on the show, um, you discussed unaccompanied minors and how this policy impacts them. How would the new policies impact those people? That's a really good question. And um, unaccompanied minors are not presumed to be ineligible for asylum. They are um, exempt from these new rules. And so, and Biden has always been seemed to pay attention to that quite a bit. Under mm-hmm. Title Forty Two unaccompanied minors were also exempt from Title 42. They would be brought into the U.S. Um, and could process for asylum or reunification with family in the U.S. But before that, they were left, before they could reunite with family or friends in the U.S., and 90% of the, the, the kiddos that came in um, have family or friends in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, they, would, they were in detention in um, a military base called Fort Bliss in um, in El Paso, so like right on the border, you can see Mexico from there, and there's huge, big white tents um, in the desert where the kiddos, up to 10,000 kids, were um, temporarily living while the administration attempted to find safe places for them to live. So with all of this coverage being focused mainly on asylum seekers at the U.S. border, do you think that this might be over, I mean, you have touched on this a little bit, but do you think that this is overlooking other important borders or entrances into the U.S.? And does Title 42 and then going into Biden's new policy, does that affect other areas of entrance into the U.S.? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think um, it's become such a politicized issue, and it's something that I think gets a lot of clicks online. And so the more dramatic people make it, the more um, news sources are going to benefit from that information. But it hasn't been as dramatic as um, many anticipated. And I think what we're forgetting about is how we can make it better for people. There are some ways um, Biden is discussing how do we make more temporary work visas available. A lot of people want to come to the United States to work, but they want to go back home for the summer or whatever it is. With our border policies now, if you enter undocumented and you return, there are criminal convictions um, or potential criminal convictions, consequences of doing that. So the border is militarized and um, very difficult. It's not a fluid situation. So if someone comes into the United States and they're undocumented, they're generally not going to leave, even though they may only want to stay to work. So I think thinking about those other options are um, potential step in the right direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the topic of fluidity, if if um, border crossings were, in a way, um, be able to make, or if we can make them more fluid, I should say. Um, obviously, I'm sure there are plenty of complicated policy levers behind that. If you want to talk about those, that'd be super interesting. But, you know, how would our border be more fluid in the case of folks being able to come over and work and return on limited time basis? Um, and if, like, if we made that easier, what would that do? Um, for the U.S. as far as like the cost of maintaining our border and as far as security goes, which are two main concerns posed by those sides. Yeah, I, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I have the answer for it, but I think um, the border is, 
it can be a scary place for anybody and having to cross it every day, even if you have what's called a B2, um, like visitor visa or um, are just coming to see family and things like that. It's, it's a difficult route to take, no matter who you are. I mean, even when I'm in Tijuana and I'm crossing the border on a daily basis, it's stressful for me as this very normal US citizen person um, because it is such a militarized place that has much security. But there are places in the border that do need um, security, you know, drug trafficking. Like we, this is a huge issue, but the drug trafficking is not generally done on, in, an in um, areas that are unpoliced or um, there's no uh, CBP officials, it's generally done through, you know, cars or waterways. And so there seems to be a need for more security there in terms of dangerous things being crossed on the border and decreasing the amount of focus on individuals being the danger. Yeah, kind of going back um, to the politi politicization and partisanship at play here, um, while Title 42 was sunsetting, there was a great deal of reporting that there would be this unmanageable surge of migrants coming into the U.S. Um, but in fact, we actually know now that that number decreased. Um, why do you think that there was so much fear and concern about the surge, and what role did partisanship play in this? So that's an interesting um, question. I'm not sure anybody has the exact answer for it, but I have some, some opinions. So uh, with Title 42, um, people were not allowed to seek asylum. And if you entered the United States and you were caught, you were immediately removed. But not in a legal sense. Like, there was no consequence. It wasn't, you weren't going to get um, a criminally charged for entering the United States, even if it was your fifth time doing it. That was not an issue. Um, and you weren't um, going to have any immigration consequences for that either. It's not an official removal or even an expedited removal. So people could do it over and over and over again. And that's one of the reasons why I think the border crossings were so high. There were no consequences. And um, besides risking your life crossing the desert, um, there weren't as many like, legal consequences of it. And prior to the end of Title 42, there was a lot of information going out um, to the public about border restrictions will increase, right? And so. If you're going to cross, maybe you cross before Title 42 ends. And then once Title 42 ends, people know that there are consequences to crossing and that they, sh they should try to follow these lawful pathways, which hopefully will be an option for some people, but is not an option for many. So I think border crossings prior to the end of 42, Title 42 were about 10,000 a day, and now um, they're down to about 4,000 a day. So why do you think that there was like so much concern about like that surge, even if it didn't end up happening. Like there's obviously like you went into those reasons like why that surge didn't end up happening. Why was there so much fear around it? You know, it's like, I don't know. I don't know why there's so much fear around it. I think it's fear of the unknown, um, knowledge about, or lack of knowledge about people that are attempting to enter the United States you know, children, families, um, people who are seeking persecution who have already suffered uh, substantially in their home countries. I think um, people don't know necessarily the truth of it. And 
uh, when the media says there's a surge of, you know, there's going to be a surge of migrants coming across the border, the, even the words that they use, there's caravans, surges, influx, mm -hmm. all that always has a negative connotation. When I think if you change the messaging on it, it could be viewed very differently. Um, and a lot of people on the border do view it differently. I think El Paso um, is a town that is incredibly welcoming and doing their best. They don't have all the resources they need, but they're not scared of the people that are crossing. They're trying to serve them in a humanitarian way. Um, but it's become such a political issue that um, we're playing with the reputation of people and their lives um, without a strong knowledge base of whether there is a danger or isn't a danger. Yeah. So given all of this, um, all of this rhetoric surrounding the issue, um, the fact that this has become a fairly politicized issue, um, and given the intricacies, I guess, of trying to make immigration policy, how do you think that the Biden administration has handled the change in policy thus far? Do you think that it's been going well? Do you think that there needs to be improvements to what's happening? There, so with the circumvention of lawful pathways, I think the increase of lawful pathways for people is the right way to go. Are there ways for people to have a safe passage to the US um, without having to have the dangerous journey on foot, on train, on um, boat, whatever it is, with criminal organizations running the smuggling of human beings? So if somebody with, you know, Biden has, has proposed opening up um, processing centers for people seeking refuge in Colombia and in Guatemala. Um, one thing people don't understand, uh, a lot of the public doesn't understand, is like in South America, Central America, and Mexico, we don't have like a UN processing site for people seeking refuge. So the only way that you can seek refuge in the US is by coming to the southern border. You can't get a visa to come and apply at an airport. You can't, this is the only option. Whereas in other places in the world, you might, um, apply at a refugee camp run by the UN. You get the refugee status there, it might take years, but then you're matched with the country and then you fly in. But if someone in Venezuela wants to um, get asylum in the US, their only option is to go on foot. You can't get, the Venezuelans can't get a flight even to Mex Mexico anymore. So it's an incredibly dangerous journey. Um, and if they're able to apply in Colombia and get a humanitarian visa, let's say, of Venezuelan, then they can fly to the US um, if they can find a sponsor. And um, it's a much safer, human, humane way for people to seek refuge in the US. But there's no other option for most people. And so creating those, I think, is, is a new way, a forward way of thinking. But we haven't seen them processing yet. There's been um, a similar program called for Central American Miners that had that actually President Obama started and then Trump stopped and then it opened up, up again under Biden but very few kiddos have been able to actually process through it um, for a number of reasons but that intention is there if they can get these to work I think it's the step in the right direction but I'm not sure we're there yet I just have a question with all these policy changes do you think that the United States has the bureaucratic bandwidth to even handle any of this or do you think, because we talk about processing centers and all these jobs that kind of, in my mind, need to be created around this to support these people's journeys, 
So do you think that the U.S. has sort of what it takes bureaucratically right now to actually see viable change? I mean, our immigration system is broken. I mean, we have millions of asylum cases already on the docket here in the U.S. It takes my clients five to ten years just to get a day in court. Um, so you wonder why people think you're just allowed to enter the United States and apply for asylum and just stay here. It's not that they don't want to go to court. They want to go to court. They can't get their day in court. And like, we try to expedite cases when we can in certain situations, but people with some of the strongest cases for asylum will be waiting for years, and that means they're separated from their families. Um, and it's not a good choice. People aren't like, yay, I'm here, I have asylum, or I'm just gonna wait for my asylum hearing. They want, many people want security and they want to have that, uh, that actual decision on asylum so that they can start living their life and work towards a pathway to citizenship. So we don't have enough immigration judges, we don't have enough um, Custom Border Protection officers, there's just not enough in general. And so um, the asylum officers who work for US Citizenship and Immigration Services, they are, um, spoke out against these new policies. They're not, they're not into it. Especially the safe, what's similar to the safe third country transit ban where you need to have a denial of asylum prior to being eligible for asylum in the US if you pass through a third country. So I don't know exactly what's going on in Guatemala or um, in Colombia right now. I'm hopeful that something useful will happen, but it doesn't ever seem like there are enough people to do the work in an educated and humane manner. Um, is disinformation, um, misinformation, a problem for folks who are possibly looking to seek asylum in the United States but don't really know how or where to start? And if so, would processing centers help um, can reduce that problem by providing information in a more robust area? Yeah, I think. Uh, the lack of trusted information out there is incredibly difficult. But also, the way that things, the speed of the way things change, it's difficult for me, someone who sits in an office or goes to court every day, to keep up with all of the changes in the policies. Someone without access to um, internet or uh, trusted news sources, how are they going to know on their journey what has changed and what they should do? And especially if they don't speak English or Spanish, like it's just not accessible to them. So, um, and there are powerful criminal organizations that are benefiting financially from the movement of people. And so, um, in certain countries, you'll see uh, advertisements for uh, people that run a company with that to transport people on boats, and they'll just have a come on a boat ride with us, and they're, you know, from Dominican Republic and Southern and Colombia. It gets, it's, you wonder why there are these issues or why people aren't safe, but then you see it, and there's no control um, in a lot of ways, and people are getting untrusted or false information in a lot of ways and risking their lives for reasons that um, aren't true. Yeah, so you actually just mentioned um, that you were in Colombia doing some work on information and disinformation in that area. Can you tell us a bit more about what specifically you were doing there and how that pertains to your work? Sure. We, um, Professor Sarah McKinnon um, in communications and uh, director of the Global Health Institute, Jorge Osorio, and I are working on a project that's called Safe Passage from the Darien Gap. So the Darien Gap is this area, most dangerous 
human passage in the world. You can't, uh, no roads go through there. It's jungle. It's, um, it's dangerous, just like the weather, and um, but also the criminal organizations that that are live within there. So, at the Global um, Health Institute here has something called One Health Colombia, and they have um, clinics, vaccination clinics, and fever clinics throughout um, kind of north of northern part of Colombia right now, and they also um, have a program that is studying. Um, the movement of disease. There's a lot of scientific terms I should be using right now. <laughs> 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 they are. Like epidemiology. It's okay, it's a polysite <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so we're looking to partner with these clinics to help um, educate people about refuge, the, the process of seeking refuge as well as their health. Mm -hmm. um, prior to embarking on a, a dangerous journey to the U.S. Like, is it a better idea to apply for um, humanitarian parole in Colombia? Or should we stay in Colombia? Colombia is one country that has um, had some very strong showings of humanitarian government principles um, with the, um, all the issues in Venezuela right now. So the goal is to, um, it's really looking at as a perspective of harm reduction. I can't change the what people have suffered in their home country at the hands of their government or other individuals, but I also see the trauma that people have endured on their journey to our southern border. And if we can eliminate some of that trauma, um, I think we can reduce the harm that a large number of people who have already suffered too much um, have to suffer continuously. Yeah. That's really inspirational work <laughs> to hear about. Um, we've been talking a lot about US immigration policy just within itself, but we thought it might be interesting to also ask how to put US immigration policy into perspective of the world. So overall, how strict is US immigration policy compared to other nations? And is there anything that really stands out about US policy or maybe general attitude toward immigration that differs from other nations across the world? Yeah, and, and U.S. immigration policy, from my perspective, uh, has very few humanitarian government principles that take place within the U.S., whereas um, last summer I was uh, in Germany with students and we um, were working at a um, a law clinic there at the University of Constance, and some of it seemed very shocking to me because people would, Germany has like refugee processing centers, so people could come into Germany and then they can live in these centers, and they're not, they're not like luxurious by any means, but they're provided healthcare, they have universal healthcare. Um, they are provided, you know, food and um, access to legal information, um, and not some, they do have some detention centers, but very few. Whereas the majority of what we do involves detention centers. And very few um, ability, there's very little ability for, for people to live in the United States with any sort of support. It's mostly deterrence. Someone comes in and they seek, they're seeking asylum, they're not eligible for a work permit for at least six months. So what are you supposed to do? In Germany, you are provided services while you're going through the process. Um, and 
And same with when I was in Brazil a few years ago, I went to um, a Catholic Charities office there where there were a lot of people from the Democratic Republic of Congo and Somalia at the time, and I was like, how did they get here? And they said, they got a visa. I'm like, how did they get a visa to come to Brazil? They went to the Brazilian embassy in, um, in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and said, I'm scared, I need a humanitarian visa. Brazil will give it to them. And then they can fly to, to Brazil and receive services there. So it's, we, while we have welcomed more people who need refuge than any other country in the world, it's after a process occurs outside of the United States generally. Um, and that is, I don't, I, it's, it's hard to say, um, I don't, we're so far from having a humanitarian and welcoming um, process for people uh, versus many other countries. I mean, not a, every other country has um, better policies than we do, but they're not as deterrent or um, as many punishments involved in a lot of it. And I noticed this, um, I wrote, recently wrote a chapter on um, humanitarianism of the US military in um, the receiving of the Afghan refugees during Operation Allies Welcome. Um, and when I was doing the research, I was looking for other times we've brought large numbers of people into the United States that are eligible for, for status and how we care for them. And it's few and far between. I mean, since the Mariel Cubans, um, but here in Wisconsin at Fort McCoy, you know, we housed 12,000, over 12,000 people from Afghan, Afghanistan um, after we evacuated all of them. Like it's such a very rare occurrence. And then the hosts were the US military. Um, I mean, obviously they worked with many international and um, national and local NGOs, but it was something that, um, was very different than the work that I do on a, on a weekly basis at the, de the detention center here in Wisconsin, which is a jail for people um, and people who have already generally passed what's called their credible fear. So they've already sh shown that they have a substantial chance of seeking asylum in the US, but then we detain them um, versus providing them services or um, helping them through the process. Um, why? Why can we do what we did for uh, Afghan refugees more commonly? Like if Fort McCoy can take on um, 12,000 or more refugees, uh, you know, why can't military bases around our country be um, helping with immigrate, just more general immigration needs, um, especially if they have the space and the resources? Yeah, so there would definitely be an opportunity to allow more of these humanitarian government principles to be enacted in the US if um, if there was more of a will, I think. I mean, we, with Afghanistan, I think everybody knew, not everybody, but m most of the people we evacuated were people that their lives were in danger because of our presence in their country. So there's like a moral obligation in that situation um, because it's somewhat our fault or whatever. There are people that, and also the people that were proponents of it, there were people in the government as well as the military. Many of the people that were um, promoting the humanitarian uh, principles for Afghans were people in the US military that had worked with the people that are translated, translated for them or um, you know, risked their lives for them. So that's a huge, it's a really powerful, um, powerful group. But when you look at Venezuela, like 
I don't know, that's not necessarily our fault, or you can't just blame it on us, so they might, I don't know. Um, but, uh, so it's, it's more detachment, I think, in a way. Whereas with the Muriel Cubans, like, Cuba is our enemy, right? So if they want to send people here, we're going to show that we're more powerful and, and help them. But that just happens so rarely in, in the modern times, I think. Do you think, I mean, and this is a hard to unpack this, but just thinking out loud, is why we're different from other countries a little bit is the question, because I have so many students who want to go into immigration law, right? mm -hmm. say that especially right now, but is there going to be jobs for that? Is there going to be money to be voted to? But is it also this hardcore individualistic streak in American culture that crosses party lines as well as combined with American exceptionalism, like you guys can take care of yourselves and plus, plus it's, it we're, it's, it's you don't merit being coming to our country because we're the American. Well, our immigration laws only want to accept people that are the best and the brightest and have or have suffered the absolute most in in the world. And so, most of us wouldn't qualify to come to the United States and live here if we were living outside. You know, like we don't have a pathway. If you don't have a U.S. citizen relationship with a very close family member. Um, or if you don't want to wait 25 years for a family member to, to help you process, or you don't have um, a Nobel Prize, like you're not, you're not getting in here, or if you haven't suffered like almost death by the, at the hands of your government. It's, it's pretty extreme in a way um, for permanency here. And I think there is some, you know, when you look at the U.S., it's like, yeah, you have to make it on your own. Like, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking, you know, we talk about where we live. I live in Middleton, which is a very not in my backyard kind of very progressive, yeah. always very blue. We were bringing low and low in low income housing. Right? What? I mean, it's right. not, not here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think that's part of it. I mean, Madison actually has a really interesting history with um, providing housing and refuge for people. Um, and so I think maybe not Middleton, but I think there, <laughs> you know, there are. You know, churches and there's more everybody. Yeah, lots of yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, I guess I don't really know, but um, there's more all of us can do, including myself. But right, it's it's far away and it's outside of our borders. Like you don't have to think about it that much. And now that not many people, not as many people are coming to our borders, everyone's saying, okay, the border issue is fine. But like, where are these people? They're not. They're still needing refuge. And who is controlling them, and where are they being stopped? So, yeah, I had one. Well, some of these people are, are ending up on Kamala Harris's front lawn, or certain politicians' houses. People, I mean, using migrants been sort of used as political pawns, or to be messaging and not being treated as human beings. But in your professional experience, what is your take on sort of that as a political operation? Seeing these individuals sort of displayed as a political pawn, as opposed to it's, it's horrifying. I mean, these are humans that have already suffered more than any other human should, and now we're using them as um, political game. Um, I mean, it, in some ways, I, the people that were, um, right, was it Martha's Vineyard? Is that mm -hmm. A lot of them are eligible now for a U visa, um, which is a certain protection when you're, you're a victim of a serious crime. And so there's some arguments to say that they were, and then they're helping in the investigation of that crime. So there might be, like they may benefit in some way from that, 
and it's in the same stream of like you have to suffer substantially in order to have any sort of benefit here in the US. But it's not the way a country like this should treat other humans when most of us have more than we need and then we can't provide, we can't welcome people with dignity for doing the exact opposite. That's what I was gonna say, and I don't mean to be so too cynical, and I'm not doing anything I, I mean, what I see is the narrative on immigration is a little, you know, show us how horrible it is for you and we will come. Mm -hmm. Yay, America, we let you come, we saved you. Now we do my gardening, right? work my house. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know what I mean? Like, right. Even the, the good people seem to right. have a bit. Yeah, you mean, <laughs> and I don't know how you shift that. Yeah, in order to come here, you have to bring a benefit to us. So, yes. you know, now they're talking about, you know, temporary work visas. Why? Because there's a labor shortage and you need them. But if um, if that ends, then there's just going to be more backlash. Okay, chance that we have the, the Trump comes back, or at least tries to come back. So, so then it changes again. It may, yeah, I know. But in the same way, I'm not sure how much would change. Like these policies that Biden put in place, besides expanding options, are very similar to what um, Trump had put in place. Well, just the rhetoric. Yeah. yeah, and kind of on that note, the the question that's been on my mind is how do we create how do we create equitable pathways to to immigration and to citizenship because we can definitely create pathways, right. but the question is how do we create pathways where you don't have to hire a lawyer where you don't have to figure out all this law on your own? Like, it's one thing to be able to create pathways, and I think that it's going to be politically difficult, but it's possible. But how do we create equitable pathways so that, you know, uh, a asylum seeker from Ukraine has the same chances with the same claim as an asylum seeker from Colombia. Yeah. Um, I mean, our, our entire immigration system is broken. Everybody, everybody believes that, but nobody is active. And I don't, we need to have some hard evidence to show I mean, in some ways, I think we're, Americans are going to say, well, what do we need in this country? What's going to make it better? But then also have a humanitarian um, pathway that is truly feasible and not more trauma um, for the people that are, that are seeking refuge. So whether it's expanding the refugee processing in certain countries where people can come here in a more um, dignified way in a safer way that's potentially it but other than that i mean it's hard to even come up with how we make it equitable because it's so far from there right now i'm more hopeful note that is you have any sense you work with the students that want to become immigration that the next the future generations see it more than older generations i'm not sure there's a lot of like hope or joy in any of the work that we do. Yeah. I mean, and that's pretty hard, but it's just what the, it's the truth of the matter. That's like what we're at. You don't see like a potential change in attitudes among younger generations. I mean, I see a will. I see more um, power within them. They're not exhausted as I am. Okay. <laughs> but, um, dedication and passion and the why a lot of people going to law school because they want to have the power to make the change. And a lot of you can do that in a way. And so that 
gives me hope. You see a lot of good people out there um, dedicating their lives to, to, to serve others. And I think that's pretty powerful. And I think that's pretty American yeah. as well. Um, going off of that, is there something that you would say to students who are interested in just learning more about this or potentially going to law school um, to, you know, study immigration law? So, I mean, immigration law is, it's broad. Um, there is, you know, there's some people that go into, like, employment-based immigration, which can be, in my opinion, somewhat fun. You can work with athletes. You can um, work with chefs, dancers, things like that to help them come into the U.S. Um, but otherwise, I think just getting exposure at law firms or nonprofits. I mean, one major issue that I think the government could change is that um, people in removal don't have access to an attorney unless they can afford one or find a pro bono one. Um, and if you're not represented by an attorney, you're three to five times less likely to receive benefits that will allow you to remain in the U.S. And the majority of the people are unrepresented. So if we could move it that direction, it's called universal representation. So similar to a public defender model. Um, and certain states have it, New York, New Jersey, um, but we don't do not here in Wisconsin. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of, do you think that extending the human rights that we extend as citizens or incorporating undocumented individuals under the 14th Amendment and including them in that would be a step in the right direction, like apart from any policy necessarily change, but just providing representation might help mitigate some of the issues getting a day in court if you're providing the same sort of like dignity and respect in the legal system as a citizen is? Yeah, I think that would be a huge change, but that's, I just don't see that that's happening. But certain states just have more um, benefits and protections for people who are undocumented or seeking um, protection in the U.S. And Wisconsin really doesn't have anything um, that's beneficial, but Illinois, New York, New Jersey, some of the more um, progressive states do, California. Um, but we have, you know, I run the Center for Dreamers here, which serves students with DACA and some students that are undocumented from all over Wisconsin. And we have, we don't know if that program is even going to continue because it's grant funded. Whereas a lot of the other Big Ten schools and a lot of other, you know, every university and that's an exaggeration, but has services for, for these people. So um, I try to be hopeful because I know there are really good people that want to do the right work, but it's, it's difficult. So this might be backtracking a little bit, but we were talking earlier about um, the politics of uh, immigration um, in the U.S. And I guess I'm wondering, is there a real distinct difference between the political right and left when they're um, holding office in the U.S. in how immigration policy is handled? I mean, it seems that there's a lot of ideological differences that are shown, especially on campaign trails, say, about um, how immigration policy should change uh, versus the right and left, but do you see that translated into like how immigration policy ends up playing out, Republican versus Democrat, when they're in office? I mean, if we're looking at the president, you know, we've had the extreme of you know the zero tolerance policy where we tore children from their parents' arms and um, criminally charged it, the parents and then separated the children. I mean, that's an extreme. Um, but, and that's not going on now. And we're not detaining families per se. They're not in family detention centers. 
but many of them, um, if they are allowed to seek asylum in the U.S., they're going to be in detention. Um, but if they're a family, they're going to be um, monitored with ankle bracelets. So it's there. There is a difference, but I'm not sure humanity reigns in either of them. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now.